everybody. Welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. I'm Molly Herford, and when I'm not on this podcast or writing all about training, nutrition, and most things sport-related, I am hopefully outside running, training, doing sport-related things. And I'm Peter Glassford. I'm a registered kinesiologist and an endurance coach, and you are here on the Consummate Athlete Podcast, where we talk about all different types of movement, and we talk to the people who do different types of movement to try and pull out different things that we can apply to our own sort of movement practice. Mm -hmm. And I think actually today's guest is sort of perfect for the fact that we've now been doing this podcast for three years and, you know, really trying to focus on building these like healthy lifestyles around sport. So not just excelling in the sport that you're in, but then also kind of developing healthy habits that, you know, translate to all of the other aspects of your life. So you're not just a great track sprinter you're a great track sprinter who also has good bone density and you know a healthy diet that isn't you know gonna end up giving you type 2 diabetes or something if you stop training yeah yeah and i think so we have dr mark bubbs on today he's uh from toronto but we talk about sort of he's in the uk he's all over the place talking uh he's the performance nutrition lead for basketball canada and we'll, we'll learn in the podcast today basketball canada is doing amazing right now which you might not expect but they're doing really really well um and i actually met dr bubbs through a client of mine who was using him for a strength coach sort of locally in toronto um, and you've been following him for a long time. He has a great podcast, he does, and yep. he just came out with a new book called Peak, The New Science of Athletic Performance That is Revolutionizing Sports. Yeah, yeah, and, and he is a naturopath, and so I think you know both, uh, both of us have had great luck working with a naturopath, sort of having that um, you know extra layer of, I guess we'll call it healthcare. Um, you know, just someone as far as whether it's nutrition or supplementation or you know blood testing, things like that is certainly in... In Canada, I know that's it's, it's a nice like extra layer. I, in the states, I'm less familiar with how that all works. We but. still have naturopaths, but it's definitely a field that's been growing in the last few years. Yeah. I know certainly when I came up to Ontario five years ago, I had no idea what a naturopath was. Right. So it's definitely not something that's you know super well publicized in the U.S. Right. Um, and I'd say not even in Canada. It's not like everyone knows what a naturopath is. No, and I think there's also in the states the like functional medicine doctor sort of mm-hmm. realm of things has grown a little bit. But in any case, you know, having someone you know they can go see and sort of talk over these things and an extra layer that could be a certainly a medical doctor. There's a lot of docs out there straight who are quite good as well. Yeah. Oh, I should I should say shout out to the naturopath that we both use, uh, Leah Sonnenberg in Collingwood, Ontario. She's actually been on the podcast to talk about women's health and hormones and a ton of other stuff. Um, so you'd have to go pretty far back in the archives to find that one, but it's definitely worth listening sure. to. And we'll link to that one, yeah. Yeah, it's one, honestly, that was one of my favorite episodes that I've ever recorded because we really got into the weeds on some stuff that, you know, we kind of often gloss over no matter how hard we try. So what did you and Dr. Bubs talk about? Well, and we cover, you know, the spectrum there from, you know, sort of high performance tactics all the way to sort of more health things. Um yeah, it's, it was really a, a great podcast, and his, his latest book, like we say, is called Peak, um, and it's it was, it was a solid book. Yeah, I think what I really like about it is he, he's one of the people who focuses a lot on the lifestyle elements, so, you know, sleep, stress management, how you're eating, all that kind of stuff, not just sort of the generic training and nutrition. Um, so I think that's that's super interesting. I think a lot of people lately have been really kind of focusing on the emotional side of sport, which is pretty cool to see. Yeah, and he has a chapter about emotional intelligence, which we talk about towards the end of the podcast, um, and just sort of dealing with that element both in teams and interacting with people, whether that's in business or, or different things like that. Um, and then the other the part that I think is interesting is sort of talking about picking a goal as far as are we going after performance? Like, are we in the race season or what, you know, maybe I've called the or stolen the term the sort of bus bench time of the season where we're really concerned about times and how fast we're moving? Um, or are we thinking more health and maybe some body composition, um, you know, and maybe that's where we're getting to some of this like macronutrient or dieting, if you will. Um, so we talk about how you work through those sort of two goals. So this is one of my absolute favorite things because I would say so many people, I actually just was writing an article on race weight or should endurance athletes even get on a scale. 
and it was pretty pretty mixed to be honest you know a lot of different experts disagree on these topics um, but what a lot of them come back to is you know is your goal to lose weight and be at this certain body composition or is your goal to perform at your best um, and very often we kind of get this weird idea that like if we don't get down to race weight, we absolutely can't perform at our best, but then we do kind of crazy stuff to get down to that race weight and end up not performing very well as a result. Yeah, and you'll see it, you know, I was just going through a, a training peak, sort of building up a plan for someone and consulting a bit with them. And, you know, you can see it as a pattern if, you, if you're keeping any notes as far as, you know, fatigued, didn't hit workout targets, felt like crap again, slept poorly. Like it's, Looking back and, and being able to look at someone else's, um, you know, again, this is where a naturopath or perhaps a cycling coach um, in the case of sort of workout quality might be helpful, right? Just because sometimes we don't, we're crazy. Like I've been down this trap myself and got quite sick um, when I was younger, you know, going to school and stuff and then trying to train way too much on way too little and dieting and everything else. Mm-hmm. And yeah, as, as Peter just pointed out, not an exclusive to women thing. Actually, I was just doing a module for a coaching course and it talked about 83% of male athletes are unhappy with their, their body. Yeah, it's like we, we want this holy grail, right? But there's so much that just training can do, um, you know, and fueling that training. It's yeah. amazing what your body can do. But in any case, you know, there might be for some of us, we're not all elite athletes either. Um, so we do talk about how you sort of hash that out when you're at the office for long work hours and how the sleep sort of ties into this, you know, not just the food we eat, but then sort of how this lifestyle piece might dovetail into that and things you can do. Um, yeah, a couple really actionable things that I won't spoil, but some good things around sort of that eating and what maybe some variations on what diet might be and, and hopefully that'll be useful. So. Awesome. Well, before we dive in, just a quick reminder, Shred Girls Lindsay's Joyride is also out in the world. So if you haven't picked up a copy of that, definitely grab one for the young Shred Girl in your life or the girl that you really wish would get on a bike in your life. Um, and if you have already read it, it would be amazing if you'd head over to Amazon and leave a rating or review. That would be super, super helpful. So thank you so much. And yeah, enjoy this episode with Dr. Bubbs. All right, I'd like to welcome Dr. Mark Bubbs to the show. Uh, I've been hoping to get him on. He's a very busy guy. He works with Basketball Canada and travels all over the place. Um, does find himself in Toronto, which is always of interest when we can get Canadians on. So Dr. Bubbs, welcome to the Consummate Athlete. Peter, thanks so much for having me on. Appreciate it. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. And so you've been in, in the UK a little here um, and, and traveling all around. I, I always like to know sort of what, what people are up to, you know, in this this week and, and sort of just recently. So, you know, in all the things you do, what, what have you been doing and spending your time on in the last week or so? Yeah, it's been a little bit more travel than normal in the last uh, little while. And been over here in the UK, uh, getting ready for the release of my new book, which uh, I think we'll dive into here today called Peak. And um, so that's been taking up some time with uh, preparation and, and podcasts like this. And, of course, also with Canada Basketball, we're getting ready for the World Cup. So we've got the World Cup coming up in uh, this summer. So and towards the end of August, start of September, we'll be over in China uh, looking to get a pl- looking to do well in the World Championships, the World Cup. And also that's the qualifier for the Olympics in Tokyo in 2020. So um, lots, of, lots of good stuff uh, coming down the pipeline. Awesome. Now, what uh, exactly, like, what do you do with Basketball Canada? You know, you're, you're a naturopath. Um, is that sort of the role you fill with them, or, or what do you find yourself doing with Basketball Canada? So my role is as the performance nutrition lead. So with our, our senior men's team, so the team that goes to the World Championships and the Olympics, but all the way down to our cadet team, so our 13-year-olds, 14-year-olds, um, which has been, you know, real, real fun in terms of, being able to layer in some our nutrition principles and our gold medal profile, what we call our gold medal profile, um, to kids, so that we can start to layer in these these habits over time, which is really, you know, we're starting to see some of those groups coming through now, and it's amazing, you know, the lessons that these kids learn over the years, and, and rather than having to, you know, instruct and wag the finger, these a lot of these kids are doing it naturally and. Of course, for those who don't know, our under-19 team is currently the world champ. So we knocked off the U.S. Uh, last year uh, in Egypt, or a year and a half ago now. And so, yeah, lots to be proud of in Canada. There's actually apparently more kids playing basketball and ice hockey, which is which is hard to imagine. But yeah. uh, there yeah, you that's, go. That's wild. I mean, and that, that seems like a big deal that Canada is beating the U.S. Because, I mean, they have 
such a varsity and you're talking 19 but i mean even their high school program i would imagine similar to basketball or sorry to football must be just heads and tails above ours you would think yeah it's been fascinating i mean when i was growing up we had one player you know steve nash is obviously an incredible two-time mvp yeah. playing in the nba and now we've got we cut we cut players in the nba from the national team there's about 15 to 16 guys in the nba who are canadian and loads more playing in you know some of the elite professional leagues over in europe so it's uh really exciting to see the development and just the, the how deep and wide the the talent pool is in, in canada and toronto area for sure now do you think some of this you know nutrition stuff and looking you know at the whole athlete is part of that long-term success like is, is has it been long enough that you know that's a that's valid or, or like where is this this success in basketball coming from do you think well, it's definitely one. I mean, a lot of our guys are very young. So when we look at you know a player like Steve Nash, for example, I mean, he played until he was forty, um, and obviously a tremendously skilled uh, athlete. But when we look at physical attributes that you'd get in an NBA player, which is often, you know, speed, power, vertical leap, he, he was pretty average in, amongst NBA players for those things. So for someone like that, you know, the the mental side of the game, the skills, and being able to maintain his body being able to recover well and so those kind of players grant hill you had playing until his late 30s those were the guys who definitely started to take nutrition seriously as they got into their 30s and it became just a staple of their program and guys like dirk Nowitzki, who just retired at 40 as well and so you know again go back a generation and guys when they were past 30 were thinking about retiring and now you've got you know athletes in the nba playing into their 40s nhl incredibly the same thing and even in, in individual sports, so you look at Roger Federer at 37, 38, winning, you know, a couple of majors recently. It's it's and still dominating in a game where typically you'd be over the hill at past 30. So it it really shows that um, you know these fundamental pieces. It's not, it's not just the nutrition. It's getting the training plan right. It's the you know the lifestyle in terms of sleep. And nowadays in sport, we see a lot of this kind of mental emotional side as well. Um, being pretty important because it, it, it counts towards your total training load you know what you're doing outside of the gym outside of the training uh, facility it impacts you right and this is what um, you know in researching the book and getting a chance to speak with performance directors across various different sports that was really something that resonated with a lot of the uh, with a lot of those folks so yeah the rest of you know if you're busy if you're working long hours if you're all these types of things you know family life social life all this comes into play in terms of being able to adapt well and, and ultimately achieve your goals yeah and i mean you you use the phrase sort of big rocks or fundamental uh pieces i guess uh, a fair bit um and you've mentioned sort of sleep and, and that sort of stuff and you know in endurance sport we have um you know different ways to quantify stress you know we have power output and stuff um, and so they do look at training stress but it, it's the difficult piece especially with you know, master's age people who are busy and, and even kids, you know, is that life stress piece, the sleep, the stress, the mental, that doesn't really get accounted, right? Um, so how do you, you know, in, in any of these age groups you're talking about, is, is there a way that you guys are tracking some of this, you know, overall total stress? How are you looking at that? Yeah, it's interesting when we look, when you look at the research, I mean, there's a, a, a large variety of different tools that can be used. Um, Obviously, the technology is is really blown up in the last decade in terms of wearables and things we can use to measure. And at Canada Basketball, we have a lot of these bells and whistles of what we can measure with folks. But you know, in the book, we talk about sort of the two ends of the spectrum in terms of even subjective wellness questionnaires, daily wellness questionnaires. You know, a series of five questions that someone would answer one to five, and you know, that's able to predict pretty much just as well as some of the most high tech devices how an athlete is coping in terms of you know, training stress, life stress, uh, these types of things. And of course, on the other end of the spectrum, and especially in terms of endurance athletes and speaking with folks like uh, Professor Paul Larson and Dr. Daniel Plews, you know, and the use of HRV, heart rate variability, as a, as a method of being able to assess what's going on with the sympathetic and parasympathetic systems. And again, no one measure is perfect, whether it's a blood test or, or whatnot, but it, it helps to start to paint the picture and, and, you know, really help to identify where the person needs to go in terms of addressing whether it's again training, plan, nutrition, lifestyle, and obviously HRV dovetails really nicely with endurance athletes because it's very specific to uh, uh, to that sport. But 
Again, in, in in researching for the book, you talked a bit about the, these big rocks and you know athlete health, which we think of now as this what's called the human first paradigm. So you have to be a healthy person first before you can really be a healthy athlete. And recently, in the British Journal of Sports Medicine, there was a quote that said, you know, "Frequent illness is incompatible with elite performance," meaning that just being healthy enough to consistently show up was predictive of success. Um, whether you were an international or national level athlete. And of course, it wasn't even just getting colds and flus. I mean, even if you had upper respiratory symptoms, right? So just the scratchy throat and the bit of fatigue or the excessive domes, you know, those were predictive of poor performances. Of course, there's some great work coming out of the, the UK with folks like Professor Neil Walsh and Dr. Michael Gleason. And we see how these things start to, these loops start to interconnect because all of a sudden, if you're getting less than seven hours of sleep, well, now you're three times more likely to catch an infection. If you're not getting six, if you're getting six hours or less, all of a sudden you're four and a half times more likely to, to succumb to an infection. And we already know that as your training intensity goes up, so does your incidence for illness, except there's a real caveat to that. And that is that the most elite athletes, the international level athletes, they're the ones who actually, despite all these factors, don't get sick more often. And so the question becomes why? What is it about them? You know, are they are they more diligent with how they're, um, you know, adopting the training plan, recovery plan, et cetera? But, but the notion of if we can keep the athlete healthy, regardless if they're recreational or, you know, elite or very elite, this idea of being healthy enough to show up every day, to do your training, to get through your training block, your year, and same for nutrition in terms of, you know, weight loss or whatever it might be. It's it's not the sexy, shiny new toy, but it's the consistency is really that huge fundamental that ultimately, you know, really pays the biggest dividends in the long run. Interesting. You said the elites, the even as they intensified their training, you didn't see the or they don't see uh, higher uh, illness. So yeah, there's an interesting. So the international level competitors were or excuse me, the national level competitors were 40% more likely to be ill than international level competitors. So there's, you know, in, in exercise immunology, you know, classically there's what we call a J-shaped curve, which means that if you're starting out with exercise, um, you sort of have a moderate risk of illness. As you become a recreational or a moderate training and load, then you would have a protection against illness, so you get sick less. And then as your, you know, total training load, exercise load increases, then you're more predisposed to cold and flu. And there's a few different models going back and forth in arguments, but this sort of S-shaped curve or this group that are the very elite, they're the ones who don't seem to get sick despite the higher training loads. And so it gets back to this question of, you know, why is that? Is it a genetic component? Right. Yeah. Um, is it the fact that because they're so elite, they have more you know, funding, so they don't have to be working that extra job or doing that extra, right. you know, Plus. obviously a lot of... Um, elite recreational athletes are having to work a lot of jobs just to make ends meet because until you make it to the top top level it's uh you know there's not loads of money in, in even elite amateur sports so it's a fascinating question and it's it definitely circles back to this idea of well we got to hit these as you mentioned these big rocks and when we look at the research in athletes their ability to assess their own sleep time and their own sleep quality is actually poor Right, so we often tend to overestimate how much sleep we get and how well we slept. Yeah, uh, and so there's some great researchers, and one's an American lady, but she lives in Canada at the Canadian and uh, out in Calgary at the Canadian Sport Institute in Calgary. Dr. Amy Bender. So her group out there came up with an athlete sleep screen questionnaire, which is a pretty cool little. Uh, it's a validated questionnaire for specific for athletes, which is tremendous because typically in, in a clinical practice, you would use ones for the general population and they don't tend to, to dovetail as easily. And, and that's a nice way to open a conversation. If you're a coach or practitioner working with someone, or even if you're the athlete to, to go through that and to say, Hey, you know, where do I, where do I sit in all this? And, and whilst most people will want to, you know, look for that supplement or, or medication to just, magically kickstart the sleep it, it does come back to you know behaviors and changing what we do in the evening and and supporting sleep in a variety of ways and it's uh yeah it's it's such a big rock and for and, you know recovery experts especially you know some of the the world's best there in australia dr shona halson 
that's the first place she starts for recovery with all her recreational athletes, in particular endurance, is on the sleep front. Yeah, we actually we had Amy Bender on as well, and it was she's oh, really, nice. really smart. Yeah, I've been tra- bugging her to get her back on actually, but I, I think it was actually because of that episode. I started rather than asking like how many hours do you sleep, I started asking um, like how many hours are you in bed. So like when do you get into bed and when do you get out? And that way you sort of catch the people like when it's eight hours, you can't possibly have slept eight hours, right? Like you're only in bed for eight hours total. Um, so I found that that yeah, it's was such a, it's, at least catching the like really, you know, the folks that are down at the six hour mark at least, right? Absolutely. And it's, it's such a great way to implement the change when you tell people rather than I want you to go to sleep. You know, I want you to be in bed at this time right. um, because it changes the way they look at it and it's accessible. And then it lets them know that it almost forces them into a sleep hygiene routine because they'll be in bed a little earlier than they want to be. And typically they'll pull out a book or obviously you've got to give some <laughs> some instructions around not pulling out the laptop and, yeah. and watching a Game of Thrones or whatever it might be. But, but uh, it is a really nice way to – and I always find it amazing actually, you know, if you go camping or um, – So good, yeah. You know, and there's no external light. How early you get tired? It's amazing, and it really hits home when you think, "Geez, you know, all this." Even though the lights might not be that bright in your house, I mean, they're actually keeping you up more than you realize. Because for most people, they get out to the cottage or go for a camping trip. And there was actually a very interesting study that talked about resetting circadian rhythms with a weekend of camping, which is which is pretty cool. Yeah, I think most Canadians study get behind that. Feel studies were really cool. Like they took people with like diabetes and prediabetes and like a couple different things and made them like hike all day. And is that sort of the ones you're thinking of? Yeah, and that that exposure to outdoor light and all these things. And so it was a way to to kind of reboot these dysfunctional rhythms that happen just from our modern city dwellers who are you know mm-hmm. exposed to all this external light. Um. So as far as I'm trying to think, where I want to take that. It, with the younger athletes then are you guys like are you going after the sleep piece at all as far as education or i I don't know if enforcement's the right word like how are you going after the younger folks as far as uh, the sleep yeah i mean the ones that are still quite young uh, who are still in canada i mean our more elite players by the time they're 16 or 17 will go down to the u.s to the prep schools down there to complete their last year or two um before going to a, a college in the u.s and so it's it's definitely something that, you know, as a program, we hammer home. And even in terms of things like breath work, a lot of the coaches now in the cool down periods will use different techniques of, you know, just some mindful um, breathing techniques to get players just aware of, of how they breathe and how that can impact things like heart rate and, uh, and thoughts and all these types of things. So it's a, especially in this day and age with exposure of kids to obviously social media and connectivity you know, the average kid, I think under 25, checks their phone about 100 times in a day. So there's there's, there's this stimulus that's happening now on top of everything else that's going on. And it's uh, it's definitely having a big impact, unfortunately, in a negative way in a lot of, um, you know, mood indices for, for kids who are young and whatnot. But, uh, you know, obviously a lot of benefits to it as well. But it's, it's finding that balance that's really key. And typically the phone's the one on the sleep front that tends to be the one where you're up texting or on Twitter or whatever it is. Um, so that's the one that's, we try to, to limit or coach them up to, to not be having that at the bedside. It's pretty wild. Yeah. The, uh, we were at a camp and one of the athletes, um, I guess tracked their time or I don't know if they were using like the iPhone sort of tracking thing, which is I think interesting to do to yourself. Um, might surprise a lot of people. I know I was like, Whoa, that's a bit enough. I'm going to try and cut that down. But, uh, she was, yeah. I think she was at five and a half hours of the screen being on. And I was like, Whoa, I think that's a lot of hours. (laughs) Yeah, it is. It's bonkers. I just read something today actually that said that people only look at uh, one quarter of the selfies or photos that they take with their phone. So 75% of the photos that are taken are never looked at again. Yeah. It's just this sort of garbage that just hangs around. And so it's, it's amazing that we're, distracting ourselves with this and we are definitely in an, in an era of you know an epidemic of absence of attention and distraction seems to be sort of the norm and so that's part of the um you know it's part of performance as you know for for all the levels of athletes and whether you're performing in in sport or in in life right of, of being able to 
to actually kind of harness your attention now because it's always being pulled away much more than, than generations past. And I think, you know, it can easily turn into a negative, whatever, phone, phone, phone. And like you say, there are positives to the phone. But I think the exciting thing for coaches and athletes and anyone who's trying to get better with fitness or performance, you know, on the field or in the, uh, as you say, in sort of the office or in business sense is that if you're able to harness this and, you know, get the phone onto, you know, turn it off and have it set and all the things that sort of optimize its use and optimize your attention, like you potentially have like a huge advantage over competitors who are not controlling their attention. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's that it's, it's really taking action and and using it for all its benefits and then being active and saying, you know, this is where the line is. Cause you know, one of the things now with, again, and connectivity is great. We're doing this podcast from, from massive distances. Um, but when we look at research around people who work 70 plus hours a week, right, we start to see changes in brain. Um, so, you know, the areas around the amygdala begin to enlarge and the connections between the amygdala and the cortex start to weaken. So all of a sudden you're going to be more, um, likely to be, you know, to go off the handle or to, to lose your, lose your cool, so to speak. And that becomes a big problem because we talked sleep before. If, you know, as you lose sleep, then you tend to think more of, of negative thoughts. And so all of a sudden, if you're an athlete or someone who's performing in or, you know, maybe you own a, a business, you know, that can start a, a real train of, of negative self-talk and impact, you know, your ability to perform, confidence, all these types of things. So it, it's definitely, it sits a little bit on the knife edge now with, with how these things can kind of go in terms of the positive, um, you know, the positive momentum versus you know, the negative as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's definitely the, like you say, those high performers in the office, which, you know, both you and I work with, uh, I think you still do, right. With sort of the, the businessman or business person. Um, yeah, for sure. But who also maybe is trying to do, you know, some cycling or do some sort of sport pursuit. Right. Um, and, and so Absolutely. it's that, that balance, right. Cause it's, you can't be high performing every single hour of the, the day. That's not how we were made right so how do you go after that you know the the you know big hours high performance work type environment combined with you know i want to do an iron man or i want to do whatever type of sport performance is there things that you find you know sort of repeatedly saying to people or is there like it's just something that you find sort of those folks need to sort of focus on i think one of the most important things at the outset is to really have clear goals with the client, oftentimes clients will say, I want to do this to, to get healthier, so to speak, or I'm trying for a personal best, but I also want to lose weight. And, it, you know, we all want to have a little bit of everything, but I think it's really important for people to to kind of delineate what is the single most important and then some subsequent goals after that, because it's going to start to steer your, your protocol in terms of how you fuel and potentially how you recover. You know, one of the things we're getting into marathon season now and you know, as I'm sure you know, Peter, like a, a lot of folks who train for marathons are trying to improve their health, they're trying to lose some weight, and the training load dramatically ramps up over the three or four months that hopefully they're preparing for. And a lot of these folks don't lose very much weight, right? There's not there's no. not the significant weight reduction that you would expect to see from people who are literally four, five, six, seven-fold times more active in that span that they're training up for these events. And so that really hits home this idea of fueling and, and, and not choosing the correct fueling for the person and you know it's tricky we tend to rely on on uh, fueling recommendations that a lot of the best athletes are using you know if you're Elliot Kachuge setting a world record at the Berlin Marathon then you definitely need a certain amount of carbohydrate you know per hour uh, but if you're someone who's got you know high normal blood sugars and holding on to a bit too much belly fat and uh, these types of things then we need to we need to start to shift how you're fueling during training to be able to maximize how well the person can use their own fuel sources, right? Their own body fat stores. And so I think that's, you know, figuring out what side of the coin you're on there. If you're really someone who's performance driven and you're in good health and body composition's good and that's the way you want to go, then that's going to dictate a lot of how um, the plan goes in terms of not only training plan, but obviously fueling and recovery as well. Yeah, and I want to draw attention to, you just did a highlight episode of a few of the different nutrition and sort of fueling episodes, and I thought that one was great. It was the one that had Trent uh, Stellengraf on it and a few other folks, but I thought that was just a great episode, like a really good summary episode, super enjoyable. So 
kudos on that, but I'll link to that one. Um, and, and definitely on that one, Trent, Fantastic. Trent mentions sort of marathon fueling and, and sort of those, those mistakes as well. Um, and yeah, and I mean, it's great. It's something that you don't hear often enough. Unfortunately, we're always asking the experts about the elites, um, like Trent talking about a lot of the elite endurance athletes that he supports. But, you know, I think you, you might have heard him mention there that even in terms of duration of runs, I mean, he's got a cap on how he how long he would want someone to run who's a recreational runner, um, which is oftentimes a lot shorter than what people are, are putting, you know, the, the miles that they're putting on. So, And the buildup that he mentions as well of, of a couple of years before you're getting into these marathons versus – the kind of couch to marathon again it's different for everybody we want people to achieve these kind of goals that they're really keen on but but just being you know building out a plan and obviously working with a someone who's like a coach that would uh, be able to steer that is so important right to avoid injury because unfortunately a lot of people do get destroyed by a marathon and then they never they sort of never run again or very very infrequently so that's definitely something to avoid yeah, I love Trent's thought on that. Like, there's the neuromuscular and sort of soft tissue adaptations take years to get to that loading, and um, definitely identified with that idea. You know, if we all just sort of focused on those maybe five and ten k's, you know, we'd be better athletes and probably see, you know, even some breakthroughs in some of this body comp we're talking about. Um, you know, with that three four year goal uh, in mind, I, you know, I thought that was just such a good, like you say, it's uncommon to hear, you know, you only hear the, you know, couch to marathon and eight week plan or something like that on the social media or whatever. Yeah. And I mean, I love the fact that he had also the hiking in there, you know, going up, oh, building some strength coming yeah. down the eccentric load. I mean, these are sort of things that for most people actually is a really easy way to get into it, but they don't realize that it's, uh, you know, the quality of the, of the movement and the, you know, uh, muscles that are really being engaged that are going to be crucial for them down the road. So yeah, I mean, if you live near some hills or some trails, then definitely mm -hmm. great yeah. place to start, right? As you, I mean, being up in Collingwood, you know, bet you know better than anyone, right? That's why we're here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, and, and I'm just trying to think here. So we have our busy folks. Um, you know, in, in a similar vein, a lot of times I find myself trying to just rein them back. Right? They want to just drill it all the time because they're so time crunched. Um, and so I don't know, is there other things that you find yourself, it could be exercise or, or any of this other stuff that, you know, pulling back, you know, actually gets people more like getting more for less. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely one of the themes that resonated in kind of doing the research for the book. And it's, it's one of those things where, you know, if you are using HRV or a daily wellness questionnaire or even things like a fasting morning glucose every now and again, you know, it's surprising that a lot of sub elite athletes are going to have quite high fasting glucose during specific training blocks. And that can actually persist even when they're coming into a, a deload or tapering phase. And, and that starts to signal the fact that, Hey, wait a minute, I think we might be, you know, over fueling here. And there's some pretty neat uh, CGM continuous glucose monitoring studies done. Um, you know, the one that we look at in the book is by a Japanese researcher and, you know, there's this elite, ultra marathon runner and a sub elite and you can see it's really interesting right off the bat the morning fasting glucose of the elite is much much lower than the sub elite and as the fueling goes in the elite runner is really staying you know the glucose is staying pretty rock steady throughout most of the 100k uh, race whereas the sub elite it's the blood glucose levels are increasing quite significantly more you know surprisingly for for the work output and then all of a sudden they hit the wall and then it comes crashing down. And and that's sort of a common theme that you that you actually see when we talked about that sort of marathon prep and everything else. And I think it's really interesting how tech now can highlight some of those things for us. But, uh, you know, even for folks that they have their blood tests at home, you know, that with their doc that they do, you know, just have a peek at what the fasting glucose is. Have a peek at the HA1C, that three-month average of blood sugars, because we see some pretty cool stuff on the longevity front with that fasting glucose. You know, there's some long... You know, 22-year follow-up studies that show that you know if you're in that top quarter of fasting glucose, then you're at significantly greater risk of things like cardiovascular disease. And then, and so the higher it was, then the greater your risk. And so that really hammers home the idea of okay, well, if if sugars are always high, then you definitely don't have the right fueling pattern for you, or you're really pushing the envelope too hard too often. And that was one of the big take-homes from uh, when I was chatting with Dr. Plews for the book. You know, he had done a, a hit session there, or a, excuse me, a time trial session, and his blood glucose just skyrocketed up and took really long time to come back down. So, 
you know, there is a cost to some of these sessions. And as long as you're, you have a training plan, a solid plan with it, with your coach, then, you know, you're, you're aiming it towards something. Whereas I think sometimes if, if you don't have a coach or you don't have a proper plan written out, it's easy to always want to chase those sessions that just kind of feel good. You're working off the endorphins and the buzz and the rush, but you know, that starts to add up. There's a, there's a cost to that. And all of a sudden you're doing a lot to get a little, whereas you mentioned, you know, there's, there's great opportunities to do a little and get a lot. And that's where, especially for more type A personalities, it's, it's using some of these metrics to show them that you can, we can start to do this a little more smartly and more efficiently. Um, is definitely, you know, for me, the way to go for sure. Um, would there be like a, a red flag for you that that blood glucose and looking into fasting, you know, blood tests and stuff would be needed? Like, is that sort of that abdominal fat or what sort of signs and symptoms uh, would someone be sort of maybe more, more importantly, looking at that? Uh, sorry again, for which? Um... Uh, so if someone uh, was having, you know, or who would be best served to be looking at this fasting glucose, you know, likely everyone, but is there sort of signs that someone should be looking at the, their sort of blood glucose and how much their, their fueling strategy, as you say? Yeah. I mean, you know, from a general perspective, even just your annual physical, you know, the more active you are, you might do it a couple times a year or quarterly. People who are really sort of want to geek out on this stuff can jump in and use a continuous glucose monitor for a couple of weeks and, and see where things stand. Um, but it's not a, you know, it's, it's a nice to know. It's not always a need to know. Mm. I sort of try, I try to differentiate those things with clients and, you know, a lot of the signs that you would see with overtraining, you get the physical signs, you know, of just fatigue, persistent muscle soreness, uh, inability to maintain efforts, um, especially maximal efforts. Sometimes the resting heart rate will be unusually low, HRV low as well. So th those are some things you can watch out for. Um, as well as, you know, on the mental emotional side, you know, low mood, anxiety, these types of things will, will crop up as well. And, and that's one that, again, we try to highlight, it was, it was really fascinating talking to the performance side as well as the, the docs where we always think of athletes as different than the general population in the sense that while well, they're, they're fit and they're doing all this training. But when you look at the general population and you say, okay, well, you're working an eight, nine, 10 hour day, you're only sleeping five or six hours you know, your diet is not as good as it could be. You're holding on to maybe a bit too much weight. You know, the total stress load on that person is, is going to be likely higher than even the athlete, right? Because the athlete at the highest level has a chance to take a three-hour nap and somebody's cooking their meals and, they, you know, hop into a, a cryotherapy, uh, you know, recovery modalities and things like that. So it's, it's, uh, it's a, it's a big load for folks to balance work and home life and training. And so I think that's where that idea of doing it smartly, you know, especially the, the longer you've been at it, then it really pays dividends and, and having some metrics that you can assess and measure whether they're you know, on the physical side, um, as well as some, uh, some biochemistry to, to follow up on is, is a great way to just ensure that you're, you're moving in the right direction. Would it often be someone who's just like really high sugar type diet, you know, eating a lot of, you know, I guess you could say traditional endurance athlete diet, um, you know, and not sort of sticking to that whole foods and maybe fueling smartly where, you know, for those harder, longer sessions, um, would, would these be typically the people you would see or is it, you know, it could be someone who's very much on a whole foods diet. Like, is it, do you see a trend there? I think one of the things that sort of goes into a couple different camps I and mean, one of them for sure on the general population is that client who's going to be, you know, maybe slightly hypertensive. You see this a lot in sort of, you know, men that sort of 40, 50, 60s where rather than running because the knees or the back, they're getting in more into cycling and they're doing logging a lot of miles, but they're still holding on to a little bit too much weight. That's when this idea of, of, you know, consuming too much processed food. We know that USA, Canada, the UK, about 50% of household purchases is on processed food. Well, ultra processed food is the classification. So, you know, we're eating too much of that convenience package stuff. Whereas, you know, in the elite groups, it's more just the amount of fuel they need to bring on board, which as you mentioned, is oftentimes a lot of sugars. And, and that's where it gets into this question where, you know, even the guidelines now and things like the American College of Sports Medicine, they would say that, you know, 30 to 50% of sessions 
for the elites even should be done with this low carb availability, right? This reduction in fuel during specific training sessions to elicit some of these positive adaptations. And, you know, you've got folks that are can maintain 300 watts on the bike at uh, three millimole per liter blood sugar, which is would be considered hypoglycemic, but, you know, no problems at all in terms of maintaining that. So it, it's definitely one where, um, again, taking into context who we're dealing with, are we trying to improve body composition? Then there's going to be a sort of a general tendency that we see on that side. And then for the elite side, it's more just this fact of almost like, we're always trying to, because we know carbohydrates are so helpful, you know, coming from the 80s and 90s, we tend to be using them consistently throughout all sessions, or at least in the, in the last, things have changed a little bit in the last sort of five or 10 years, but I think there's still more room for um, for a shift there. And you see some you know, pretty impressive stuff with some of the guys who are fueling lower throughout the training um, sessions, and then obviously you know, competing higher and ensuring that they have that full glycogen status for the for the competition, so they can, uh, you know, as one of the experts put it, there, you know, treat your treat your body like a used car on the uh, on the competition days, but then make sure you're taking care of everything in between. Yeah, yeah, and I, I find that sometimes what gets missed in that is the fueling, yes, but then that also ties into the intensity usually, right? Like, and that it gets back to people can't just go so hard every single day that they need to be like downing gummies and gels and stuff. Right. And I think that's oh, sometimes, massively. sometimes that's what gets missed in that. Like, Oh, the elites are, you know, doing this like lower carb or fasted training or whatever the, the thing is. Right. But it, it gets missed sometimes that they're also not just like hammering out, you know, that dead or uh, what is the phrase I'm looking for? Like the just middle intensity, right? Like just sort of that moderately feeling good workout intensity. Yeah, I think that's one of the problems is for the regular folk they see an, a runner who's an elite runner running at aerobic heart rate, but they're running so damn fast that <laughs> right. it looks like they're sprinting, right? Because <laughs> yeah. they're so elite. So it's like, oh, that person's sprinting, so will I. You know, it's, it's tough to say that, you know, actually that person's moving at 75%. And if you go at 75%, this is how fast you run. You know, yeah. quantifying some of those things. Cause it, it, is, it is just unbelievable, the speeds that... Uh, yeah. The elite marathoners can go at. I mean, I don't think you know. can run even that fast. Yeah, I mean that's the challenge, right? Get someone to sprint and see how long they can maintain it, and then you you break the news to them that uh, the elites are doing that for two hours straight, and it's just like it's hard to understand. Do you think uh, weightlifting or, or or increasing muscle mass, you know, strength training, uh, is this something that maybe you know these same folks, these busy people uh, who are maybe doing some endurance sport? Is that something that we should be looking at maybe even to control blood sugar um, or just improve sort of health longevity uh, since we're not, I always joke, we're not going to the Tour de France, right? Like few of us are, are playing in the NBA or going to Tour de France. So at some point, those two goals are important, right? So do you think strength training is a piece of this, you know, aside from the nutrition we all like talking about? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we definitely see in the research strong associations between, you know, total muscle mass and longevity you know, leg strength, grip strength, you know, these are really important considerations. And, you know, as, as we get older, you know, unfortunately the total caloric intake can decline for some folks and the protein intake can decline and, and age-related muscle loss, you know, sarcopenia is a real problem in, in, in 65 plus. So absolutely, it's an important thing to include. And I think, you know, the more, you know, the more, you know, high-level recreational, let's call it, I think it's really nice for these folks to try to get specific blocks in the off season where they're trying to build to, to really get stronger and, and add some, some more muscle and then try to maintain that throughout the season with, you know, you need less frequent training once you've sort of built up a certain base. I think that could be an area where a lot of people still don't totally take advantage of. They try to maybe drip feed the training in throughout all these seasons and don't have a real specific block where they say you know this month or this six or eight weeks i'm actually going to put the bike or the running aside and we're going to build up some some more horsepower here in terms of the total strength and then you can you know literally with a session or two sh very short sessions a week you can maintain that those qualities uh, throughout the year because you know effectively with sports like you know in the nhl or the nba the seasons are so grueling that you know those guys are just putting in the minimal doses they need to, to stimulate those um adaptations that they've developed over the summertime right they're they're not trying to harness those new gains as they knock out a six seven month season and into the playoffs right yeah 
yeah, they're doing stuff after the games and stuff like that and just trying to sort of fit it in. Um, is there like a, a protocol or something? I know we both, I, I've gone to a, a course with uh, Coach Clance, Clance uh, Layler as well, which I know awesome. worked with him a bunch. Um, yeah, oh, for sure. He used to work with Clance. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, his, the work capacity that those, you know, hockey and some football guys and stuff, like the work capacity that they have, like me coming from an endurance background, I was just like, whoa. Like, I think these guys could actually do pretty well at mountain biking, even though they're, like, massive dudes. Like, I was like they're training here for, like, two and three hours and stuff like this. And I'm like, oh. Um, yeah, is I mean. It, is, is that sort of where you think, you know, that, uh, I don't want to say that Coach Clance does lots of stuff, but, you know, in the Olympic lifts, or is there, you think most people, you know, especially aging folks, just sort of in your classic squats? Or where, where do you find yourself recommending uh, these aging athletes go? Yeah, I mean, I think it definitely depends on context. I mean, in terms of how well someone moves. I mean, you know, sometimes people who haven't done a lot of sport have better movement qualities than those who've done a lot of a certain sport. You know, um, and yeah, so it depends sure. on the person in front of you. And if you know, if you know, squatting's terrific, but if the pattern doesn't look very good, then that's where changing it up, using things like sleds and whatnot to to initiate some of that load. I think building up sprinting qualities is a really nice way and you know of course starting on grass and and doing some drop-ins and you know in the book i interviewed the guys at altus performance down in arizona and that's where a lot of the elite sprinters train and you know jason hetler walks through some of the the strategies that he uses with the you know elite clients but that dovetail in for the rest of us if we want to add some of these qualities because those sort of explosive movements are really key for you know helping to add the muscle and keep you lean but one of the things we forget about is that, you know, if you fall over, it's 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 your fast twitch muscles that are saving you, right? Mm-hmm. And we don't tend to think about it, but as you get older, 60, 70, 80 plus, you know, th- th- that becomes a real serious issue if you have an injury, if you break a hip, uh, if you become immobilized. So, you know, maintaining those qualities is really super important. And I you know I saw a post actually the other day with an 80 year old lady at a track doing her her sprint workouts that she's always done since she was, you know, a teenager. And it's definitely that use it or lose it mentality. You know, your, your brain and body are very plastic. I mean, up until the very last days. And so if you, if we keep giving it the right inputs, you know, it definitely responds and you just got to watch out. If you haven't been doing those things, don't jump in the first, the first practice, like your Usain Bolt, you know, you got to build your way up into it. But, uh, right, right. but those are some nice strategies for people who maybe don't have weights at home or, or the gym vibe is not there. You know the environment is not their sort of most desired place, and then you can find whether it's sled work or some heavy carries, you know, farmers walks, that type of thing, uh, or some sprints that can be really effective for for building some strength, uh, in in really short order as well. You know, some people can even you know, you pick one exercise in the day, take ten minutes, do multiple sets, and you can really simplify things and and limit the movements to even a handful, and you're going to get some pretty significant gains if you just keep that progressive overload rolling over the weeks yeah and i think the cool thing is that you know if you've never done anything you know you've just been riding bikes or running or something right like you could, you could essentially start at home with almost nothing um and, and just sort of give it a, a few weeks or months and then sort of progress from there whether that's like you say sprinting or going to a gym or buying some weights or whatever yeah that's a great point i mean that's one that i always hear from the guys who work in the bodybuilding world is that you know it's the minimum stimulus you need to produce the result. And I think a lot of times, especially men fall victim to, oh, I'm going to get back in the gym and they do this massive routine. It's like, you know, you're wasting some really easy gains here. You know, you could do two sets and you're going to, you know, you're going to feel the delayed onset muscle soreness the next day. You're going to get the adaptation and there's always room down the road to really layer it on. But, uh, you know, always try to get the the most with the least is, is typically sets you up for a pretty good, uh, chance to then overload when it's time to actually apply that extra bit of effort down the road now i know there's uh some mention of the microbiome and and sort of our gut bacteria uh in the book um and this is definitely sort of cutting edge is there anything you know there for endurance athletes as far as microbiome or is this sort of something we're watching in the future or or what's happening in, in that direction this is definitely a a fascinating space i find because depending on which 
domain you work in. So in terms of functional medicine or naturopathic medicine, sometimes it seems like the answer to every question is the microbiome. <laughs> you know, if you have any problem, the solution is to fix the microbiome. And then if you go on to the other side of the spectrum, you get folks who say, well, geez, things are, you know, it's it's far overrated. It's, it's effect, not cause. And so, you know, the guts obviously serves a really important role. I mean, it's an interface between us and the and the external environment. And it's fascinating when we look at traditional populations. So if you go around the world, um, various countries in the Americas and Africa and Asia, you know, the diversity of the gut bacteria is far greater than if we look at all the folks who live in, you know, modern uh, Western environments. And so, you know, you get researchers like um, folks like Nick West and Dr. David Pine down in Australia trying to start to identify this this gut microbiome signature you know the athlete gut microbiome signature to see which which uh, species tend to crop up in the in the gut and you know and, and in their work it's interesting they did elite recreational elite and healthy controls and you know you get some some themes like you know bifidobacterium longum acromantia bacteria like prevotella which actually another researcher in the u.s um Dr. Uh, Lauren Peterson uh, from the Jackson Laboratory, formerly, um, she did some really great work in actual in cyclists, and you know she actually found that the intensity of exercise that they worked at was really predictive of that you know the, the species in the gut, that gut microbiome, and that she could actually predict you know if you were in the 25th percentile, um, if you had Prevotella, you'd finish in the top 25th percentile of, of the actual race, which is pretty um, phenomenal. But at the end of the day, it gets back to this question of, okay, well, diversity is good. You know, we know that. But is it the cause or effect, right? Is it just the fact that the person is healthy and training and eating the right way that creates this environment? Or can we, you know, consume some things or expose ourselves to the various things that will then shift the microbiome and, and provide a, um, a performance benefit? And it's interesting because, you know, Dr. Nick West is doing some research in certain folks, actually, their bacteria will elicit a greater caloric output from from the food intake than others, and that's typically in, in people who are overweight. But if you could harness that quality and put it into an endurance athlete, then you might have a performance gain there. So there's some really kind of novel, um, you know, almost Star Trek-like things out there. But uh, when we look at all the different rabbit holes, there's a lot of claims that are made. But the one thing that we can really say and you know, we see this in studies of uh, rugby players as well in uh, Orla Sullivan's work in, in Ireland. You know, the rugby players had tremendous diversity in their gut as well. And so that, that's really the biomarker that we should be focusing on. You know, there's a lot of, again, nuances there, but that's 30,000 feet. That's That should be the real ultimate goal. And, you know, one of the things that I liked, uh, the suggestions from one of the experts over here in the UK, Dr. Uh, Miguel Toribio Mateas, he's got this wonderful thing he calls the 50 food challenge. And so basically it's very simple. You know, you put up the, you put up a piece of paper on the wall with 50 numbers next to it. And then there you go. That's your week. You know, you've got to have 50 different food items. And initially it sort of sounds easy, but when you look at research around, you know, bodybuilders and things like that, they're only eating 12, 14, 15 different food items. And so most of us actually don't eat as diverse an array of foods as we think we do. And so I think for, for a lot of people, that's a great place to start. You know, increase the diversity of your diet in terms of the vegetables, the fruits, the carbohydrates, the proteins. And then all the things like, you know, prebiotics and fiber and those types of things, they tend to take care of themselves. So that was, you know, that's definitely one that I think people can, uh, you know, can do a bit of investigation to. You know, there's a bunch of tests. I'm sure you're aware of things like the U-Biome test is a test that you can right. run to, to, to check out diversity. and. You know, it's a very low fidelity kind of 30,000 foot view, but uh, it does give you a nice snapshot and it compares you to the population. And it's a way, like most tests, it's a way to then stimulate action upon the part of the athlete, right? It's a way to say, hey, here's where you're at and this isn't nearly where we want you to be or, or the individual client, right? Yeah, and maybe correlated, you know, like any metric, like we're talking about HRV or whatever, correlated, you know, we, we're seeing this symptom. You know, you're, you're not doing as well as you want to or you're not sleeping or overweight or whatever, right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's always like the starting point for the conversation that says, okay, let's get back to looking at your nutrition and your training and all these lifestyle factors. And, 
you know, the, I mean, the other cool thing with chatting with Dr. Weston Pine was, you know, when we look at the research around probiotics and they've done a lot of it, you know, in 67% of the studies in athletes, we see prevention or, you know, shortening of severity and duration of upper respiratory tract infections. That's a cold or flu, right? Um, so it's definitely something that people can, you know, as your training volume goes up or if you're in a certain period of the year where you're going to be more exposed to colds and flus, maybe you got little kids at home, you know, that's something to definitely think about. And, you know, the research recommends sort of a, you know, a 14 day buildup as well. So you do have to start earlier than you would think to, to get that protection for when it's uh, time to really, you know, when it's important to not get sick, let's say. Yeah. Well, that's exciting. I like that 50 food, 50 day food day, a food challenge. Um, you know, that's to me strikes, you know, for the everyday person who's not, you know, wanting to do a ton of pills or, you know, sort of stick to that, the sort of big rocks, right? Like that seems like something that makes a lot of logical sense, right? You sleep well, you eat a variety of foods, you exercise smart. Um, you know, some of these more complex things, hopefully will take care of themselves, right? Yeah, I mean, forces people down different aisles of the supermarket too, right? You got to, or different, uh, you know, pick some vegetables you haven't had in a while. Yeah, yeah. I always forget like things like yucca and things like that. Like I, I love sweet potatoes, but, you know, sometimes I, I like forget, you know, there's all the different potatoes and yucca and squash. I just like rediscovered squash the other day and I was like, oh, you could just definitely do this instead of some sweet potato for a change. Um, yeah, so definitely. Like, yes. Yams, par- uh, parsnips, beets. Yeah, for sure. It's a, yeah. a lot of great options for sure. Um, the other sort of, I don't know, leg of the stool is overused phrase, but the, the other thing we discuss a lot here is sort of, you know, a bit of sports psych, a bit of sort of the, the question of why are we doing this? Um, and I know in your book, you talk a little bit about emotional intelligence and sort of mindset. Uh, I wonder if you could talk us through, you know, maybe someone who's, you know, a master's athlete, you know, they got kids, they got a job, but, you know, they have some goals, um, and, and they're sort of struggling. Um, so is there some way, you know, what, what, what is the relevance of this sort of, emotional intelligence and sort of mindset for, for this type of person. Yeah. I mean, emotions is a really powerful thing in, in sport and in life. Um, so we dedicate a whole chapter to that side of things and our sports psychic Canada basketball, Dr. Peter Jensen's tremendous. And, you know, he's always saying that people don't make decisions based on logic. You know I mean? They, people make decisions based off emotions and they make decisions based off imagery and that's sometimes in the fields like medicine, I think that's something that we forget because unless it's acute emergent medicine, then those things aren't as important. But in the chronic lifestyle diseases that we have today, you know, connecting with the person in front of you is is nine tenths of the whole game because, you know, you've got to get that person to sort of buy in and be part of that process. So, you know, emotions are a huge part of it. It's definitely the fastest way to connect with someone, with an athlete, with a client, um, you know. So it becomes an important way to to be able to harness that. And I think the trickiest thing for a lot of practitioners or coaches is just to build that trust in the person, right? It's the question I always get from GPs when I do talks around nutrition for docs is, you know, why why do they listen to you and not me? I give advice around nutrition. (laughs) You know, that's one of the questions I'll get. And unfortunately, it's just there's not enough time in in a 10-minute visit for a lot of in, in a traditional system. You know, I think I read a recent study that, um, you know, the patient's interrupted in the first 30 seconds of a visit. And so, you know, in the book, we talk about um, one of the nice stories is around the English uh, football team, or soccer team that we call them, at the World Cup last uh, last year in, in Russia. And so classically, the you know, the English team has, hasn't won since 1966, a little bit like the, the Toronto Maple Leafs. So it's something that's been hanging over them for quite a while. And you know, they've got a younger team. They used to have a lot of big international stars, but they never really coalesced and became a cohesive unit. And, you know, this lady, Pippa Grange, who's the psychologist, team psychologist, was really big on trying to build more trust between the teammates as well as with the coaching staff. And, you know, two of the key things that she mentioned as being important for building trust were one, authenticity, and two, vulnerability. And so it's okay, how do you get a group of type A's or you know, elite athletes or it could be executives or whatever to, to do these kind of things, right? To be vulnerable, to be really authentic. And, and so a lot of it came back to you know, doing these weekend trips, one of them which they went camping and you know, there was no phones and they were sitting by campfires and sharing stories. And, and of course, 
you know, there was a lot of these types of activities built into their buildup, but they ended up, you know, England had a tremendous run in the World Cup, making it all the way to the semifinals. And, you know, that was a big part of the whole identity. The team just looked like they were really playing for each other and had bought in. So, you know, I think that's something that's very important for um, for clients, whether it's working with their doc or a practitioner or a coach, is to really be able to start to build a relationship and to find someone that you can really trust because you do want to build a long-term plan. You know, you want to have that annual plan, the plan that you can build on year after year. Um, because as you know, Peter, I mean, it takes years to really get, in, you know, of training someone to really be able to understand how they work and to really be able to to leverage all the things that you've learned along the way. So, you know, I think that sort of shotgun approach, unfortunately, we all fall victim to wanting to try this program or that program, whether it's on a nutrition front or a training front. But that value of, of consistency and, and being able to build a bit of a team around yourself is, is really crucial. I think so. Yeah. And it, it's definitely, you know, it's that wanting to have a relationship, right? Um, whether it's, you know, that's what I love about naturopathy. I've used naturopaths and have been lucky to find a couple good people um, in, in the, over the years. And I think a lot of that is, you know, why it's successful. You know, there's very smart people who are naturopaths, obviously. But I think, honestly, a lot of it comes down to that spending that 30 minutes or hour with someone who's actually listening and, and you know, going through everything, right? And it has to have huge therapeutic benefit just having someone actually listening for a while, right? You must find that. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And it's, it's something that, you know, obviously in the in the medical system, it's just tough because it's it is the way it is, and there's dollars are stretched, and everyone's doing as best they can. But there's definitely a huge opportunity because we just let so many people, you know, get sick or unwell, and have to treat them with really costly um, interventions and surgeries and such. And yeah, I mean, I mean, it's the reason why people take advice from their sister, brother, aunt, uncle best friend you know you always wonder why they changed the plan to do something that the someone they know told them and it's it just comes down to that idea of trust and 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 really having more of a relationship with those folks than they do sometimes the experts are going to see mm-hmm. it must be too i mean the emotional intelligence piece sometimes what you know we, we talked about trent talking about the marathon and it being you know maybe a three-year type goal um you know, and, and sometimes is that is that a piece of that? Can we call that emotional intelligence? Just sort of knowing there's there's like a journey there and each sort of, you know, race or each workout is, is a piece of that. Is that is that part of what you would classify then as that emotional intelligence and sort of control, I guess, mindset? Well, I mean, this is a it's a big part of success, obviously, in sport and in, and in life. And, you know, Daniel Goleman's original work and original book called Emotional Intelligence. And, you know, he defined it as, you know, someone who can recognize emotions that they're feeling who can manage them and who can avoid being overwhelmed as well as who can recognize the emotions of others and use that awareness to then manage that relationship and i think those are two really big key points because especially in this day and age with the connectivity with the constant comparisons of of you know when people are scrolling through instagram of that feeling of being overwhelmed right we see that in terms of trends of anxiety rates being on the rise and um, and so that's a, that's a big part of it. Cause I think even in a training plan, you know, it's natural for people to get a bit anxious around like, is this actually working? Am I on the right path? Um, and then that piece around being able to manage relationships of, of, as a coach, being able to sense the emotions of your athlete or client and, and figure out, okay, where are they at and vice versa as well. Right. So I think that's, a, you, know, you see that a lot in all these really successful performance teams out there in various sports of, um, everyone really taking into consideration, you know, the other folks' point of view. You know, they're not just seeing the problem through their own lens. They're trying to see the problem through the lens of the other practitioners or through the lens of the client. And I think that's, you know, a huge, a huge part of the process. And it's it's difficult today because when you look at the research in psychology, you know, we're getting more individualistic, which is, you know, good in a sense that it makes us more self-reliant, but it, it also makes us more narcissistic, Right. It also makes us more think of ourselves um, first and, and to not consider, you know, a third party's perspective or someone else's perspective. And so I think that gets to be problematic when we get into these conflict resolution scenarios, whether it's with a teammate, a coach or another aspect of your life that, you know, to really stop and try to try to do those types of exercises can really help in terms of managing the situation, but also 
deflating how intense it seems, right? Because things can often, uh, you know, they call that the amygdala hijack, <laughs> which is when, you know, you just sort of go off the wire and, uh, you know, the, that threat level in the brain just overrides everything. And now you're constantly focused on this one thing and it's always in your mind versus, you know, you lose track of all the other things you need to be, you need to be, you know, assessing in your life. Yeah. Yeah. I love the, the addition there that emotional intelligence is also just sort of thinking about the relationships with others and, you know, what other people need or are feeling at a given time. Right. Cause I think you're right that that is important in that, how that whole environment works ends up being better for us. Right. So if you're thinking about the needs of others, um, it should be better for you in the end too, if everyone's feeling better and getting what they need. Right. Um, yeah, and that's the ultimate irony of the whole thing, right? Yeah, right. exactly right. If you if we put the others investment. first, then we end up taking care of ourselves uh, in a much more efficient way. Um, yeah, yeah, I love that, and I think that's a, a good spot. And I mean, I could keep asking you questions for a long time, but I've been greedy with with time here. Um, so I want to just say thank you for coming, and I would like to make sure that we link to all your key socials. So can you let the people know where they can find you on sort of the Twitter and Instagrams? And we'll, of course, link to Peak, your book coming out in, on May 24th, 2019. Yeah, awesome. Listen, I appreciate it. I uh, appreciate you t- carving out some time. Uh, yes, the new book, Peak, The New Science of Athletic Performance, that is revolutionizing sports. That's coming out. Uh, so you can check that out. Chapters in the go. Uh, Barnes & Noble, if you're in the U.S., Amazon, all that good stuff. And on social media, if you want to connect, at Dr. Bubs, you know, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and, uh, you know, happy to answer questions. And, and uh, yeah, hopefully people enjoy it. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. Uh, you can check out my stuff over at theoutdooredit.com or by following me on Instagram and Twitter at Molly J. Herford. And you can check out Peter's coaching, training plans, blogs, all that fun stuff over at smartathlete.ca or by following him on Twitter and Instagram at Peter Glassford. And if you want to support this show and other awesome podcasts, please check out wideanglepodium.com for show info, other podcasts, bonus content and to become a donating member so you can get all of that rad behind the scenes content and help keep shows like this on the air. And lastly, if you're enjoying this podcast and all the information that we're bringing to you every single week, uh, do us a solid and pop into iTunes to leave us a rating and review. Takes you about two seconds. You can do it on your computer. You can do it on your phone and it really helps us out. Thanks so much. And we will see you next week.